Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Sharpening Report. I am your host, Josh Peck. Tonight, we have a very special guest, one of my good friends who has a new book out with his wife. We have Derek Gilbert, uh, co-authored the new book, God's Giant, God's Giants, or let me see here, Giants, Giants and Gods. <laughs> see, I, 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 I don't like your title because I get the order mixed up. Giants, Gods, and Dragons. So, of course, it, it, we are talking with Derek Gilbert tonight. Derek, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Off to a off to a, a heck of a start, aren't we? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes until you can grab the pebble from my hand, grasshopper, I am still <laughs> yeah, no, of your master. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, we're still working <laughs> on it. But but hey, this is a, this is an excellent book, and um, I've enjoyed reading it. Thank you again for sending me an advanced copy. That was awesome. I've been uh, reading through the PDF. There's some amazing things in here, and things that I think the audience is really going to get a lot out of. And it's it's one of those things too that we you you talk about things uh, that some Christians, especially in our fringe kind of Christian groups, sort of think is is like. What what stone has been left unturned? You know, haven't we researched everything to death on the giants? Uh, but and I will say that it's actually not even that large of a part of your book. But uh, you do get into some areas here that has, as far as I know, has never been written about. Um, you know, maybe in some academic papers or something, but uh, for things that are accessible to most of us, hasn't really been written about. So you, you start off the, the book with, you know, the old dragon, Garden of Eden, Watchers, uh, and, and that kind of stuff. A lot of us know that basic story, but what what were you able to pull out here that, that sort of redefined this? Because when I was reading it, I was like, wow, this kind of gives me a deeper insight into this whole narrative. Well, we're trying to blend together uh, archaeology with the Bible and show how that the what what scholars have been digging out of the sand in Mesopotamia and in the Levant for the last 200 years actually supports the biblical narrative. And a lot of this is a synthesis of things that have been written in my previous books, The Great Inception, uh, Last Clash of the Titans, even Bad Moon Rising, even though that focused mainly on Islam. But bringing all of this together along with Sharon, who's got a deeper understanding of the biblical aspect of end times prophecy. And um, interestingly, this worked a, a little bit differently. I, I think we covered a lot of the uh, the aspect of the giants of old and the, the cult of uh, the Rephaim in our previous book, Veneration. Uh, but in that book, I kind of did the, uh, the editing and put all the pieces together into a final form. In this one, she took all the pieces and put things together in final form. And so she took the stuff that I had written and researched and actually made it sound a lot more elegant than, than I'm capable of writing, which was kind of neat. But um, I, I think in uh, building on what we did in veneration, in showing that the, the Garden of God, which was uh, on the mountain called Eden— uh, if we read Ezekiel 28, which is a, a chapter many of us in church never really heard about because it's kind of weird, and there are those who want to dismiss it as just a polemic by the 
by the prophet Ezekiel against the king of Tyre, just as uh, Isaiah chapter 14 is usually dismissed as a polemic against the king of Babylon by the prophet Isaiah. Instead of looking at them and saying, you know, these really deal with the same entity and the same um, uh, event, which is the rebellion in Eden and the casting down of that rebel in Eden, the Nakash, the serpent, Satan, to become Lord of the dead. So how has that influenced all of history? And um, what are the uh, physical, what's the physical evidence that's been uncovered? And, and so we dug deeper into that uh, and uh, again, brought back some things I put in my first book, The Great Inception, regarding the uh, the Mesopotamian archaeology, specifically regarding things like head shaping, right. okay, uh, deformed crania. This is something that uh, Eli Marzulli has been chasing for quite a while, and he's done a lot of work uh, specifically with the Paracas skulls in, in Peru. Um, those typically are dated by experts to 9th or 10th century AD. But what I found for my first book four years ago, and uh, we, we dug a little deeper on it this time around, is that uh, head shaping actually originated in the ancient Near East. In other words, Mesopotamia is ground zero for this phenomenon. And it goes back to the earliest historic civilizations, actually prehistoric civilizations that we're aware of, the civilizations that emerged in what later became Sumer, and then Babylon and Akkad in what is now Southeast Iraq. That's ground zero for this phenomenon. The ancient city of Eridu, which I argued in my first book, and we argue again in this book, is the site of the Tower of Babel, which was the temple to the god Enki, called Eabzu, or House of the Abyss. Um, that At that location, which was excavated back in 1949 by a couple of archaeologists, they found 206 sets of human remains. And as they were excavating these uh, human remains, which were dated to the 5th and 6th millennium BC, because this temple apparently, using the dates that, that they have agreed upon, which I know don't track with a literal uh, reading of the dates that are recorded in the Bible, um, and we do that specifically, by the way, just so that we don't alienate those who don't already buy into our interpretation. So, oh, oh you're some Christian fundamentalist and you're, okay, forget it. No, we, we bring them in and show them that when you look at things and the flow of history, the narrative in terms of what followed what tracks exactly with the Bible. Anyway, when they excavated these 206 sets of human remains that are anywhere from six to 7,000 years old, they found that every one of those 206 sets of human skulls uh, were deformed, were, were misshapen, were, were elongated. Now, we don't speculate as to why that happened. I mean, the scholar who excavated back in, in 49 said, well, it was due to earth pressure after burial. Really? Uh, would the thing that, is, would that have only other... affected the skulls, or would, it, would that have affected the rest of the skeleton if it was just due to that? That is an excellent question, Josh, and that was one not addressed by the scholar in 49 who obviously did not want to address that issue. What I found is that most mainstream scholars really don't want to touch this until you get into more uh, modern, the more modern era, like the, uh, uh, there, there's a tribe of Indians from the Pacific Northwest that were known to have, uh, the, uh, I'm not going to remember the name of the tribe, so I'm not going to guess, uh, but that they could document where they were binding the heads of their children. Well, according to what little research has been done by credentialed scholars in ancient, the ancient Near East, which uh, if you're envisioning a map in your mind, that's Iraq, Syria, Jordan, southern Turkey, western Iran, etc. 
almost every, I mean, this was almost universal. And again, using their dates from about 10,000 BC until about 4,000 BC. So for 6,000 years, this practice of head shaping or just the fact that people were born with misshapen heads. Uh, again, we don't get into this because we don't have any evidence to make a call one way or the other. It was universal. It was not s segregated by class or tribe or you know, economic status or anything like that. It was uh, apparently everybody did it. So hmm. bearing in mind that writing didn't begin to develop until about 3,500 to 3,000 BC, which we put as the period just after the flood, the period of the time that would have been the kingdom of Nimrod, um, it went away. Now, it came back in other parts of the world. Again, we wouldn't have the Paracas skulls. We know that the, the Huns of the 5th century AD practiced head binding to turn their heads into cones. But why were they doing it 6,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago, before they invented writing? When they were, this is a practice that if they were doing this by wrapping their children's heads very tightly, could, can lead to brain damage and death if you don't do it right. So why do this? Well, we compare that to the, uh, the so-called ophidian or lizard-like uh, figurines, fairly small, There's about, about 125 or so that have been found in ancient Near East. People who want to look at these, uh, uh, the uh, period of time is called the Ubaid culture, U-B-A. AID. You can look them up. You'll know what I'm talking about because the ancient aliens guys have an answer for them. Oh, these are the Anunnaki. These are the space aliens who came down and created humanity from monkeys and whatever. Uh, all of them that have been found have been found in the vicinity of ancient Eridu, which again is what we argue was the location of the Tower of Babel, which we connect to a poem or rather a Sumerian king named Enmerkar who in the Sumerian king list is identified as the second king of Uruk, the city of Uruk, after the flood. Now, in the Bible, that city is spelled E-R-E-C-H, Erech. Today, we just call it Iraq. Ah. So like Nimrod, second king of Uruk after the flood, there's a period of history, again, just post-flood in our timeline, which is theoretical, but between about 3800 BC and about 3100 BC, where Uruk, which is in southeastern Iraq, near the Persian Gulf, controlled everything in the Fertile Crescent between the Tigris and Euphrates as far north as southern Turkey. Now, that's a long way to walk in a day, in, in an era where you have to march to conquer cities. You can't fly a drone. You can't, you know, you don't have trucks or horses. They had to march a long way. And yet they have found evidence of this particular civilization as far away as southern Turkey, western Iran. They were conquerors. It was the world's first Pyre, and that we know of from history anyway, and it's recorded in the Bible. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was a wreck, but then he went into Assyria and built these cities. What they're recording is what we see in the archaeology. But again, that followed this period when everybody apparently was either born with or was deliberately shaping their heads into cone heads. And the question is why? What were they trying to emulate? Um, we argue that uh, this may be their conception or a memory of the reptilian spirit beings described in the Bible. Now, the Bible doesn't call the serpent in the garden um, a, a, an angel, but we see in the book of Numbers where the uh, Israelites are bitten by fiery serpents. The word in, I think it's Numbers chapter 21, if I remember off the top of my head, 
But we you know it's the episode where Moses has to put up the bronze serpent on the pole and everybody has to pray toward it and then they're healed. But the, the phrase in Hebrew is nakash seraph. Mm. Well, nakash in Genesis 3 is translated serpent, but seraph translated fiery or uh, uh, is, the, uh, is the word behind the word seraphim, like in Isaiah 6, his throne room vision. Uh, the verb in Hebrew means to burn, so literally burning ones. So you've got this idea then that Nakash and Seraph, Seraphim, are interchangeable, which suggests that perhaps they were serpentine in appearance. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the later Egyptians had a memory of this uh, divine protector of the pharaoh that they called the Uraeus, which is a hooded cobra. Mm-hmm. That when its hood expands out, it looks like, because of the colors on it, it looks like three sets of wings on either side of the cobra's head. Mm. Well, in Isaiah 6, the seraphim have six wings. Now, you know, skeptics will say, well, that's just the seraphim with these, this idea of the six wings. That's just, you know, they're, they, they, were, they were mimicking the Uraeus of the Egyptians. Maybe it's the other way around. Um, anyway, we see that in a couple places where this idea, you've you got the, uh, the fiery serpent, the flying serpent. Uh, Isaiah mentions that uh, later in Isaiah. Uh, so you, you've got the, these ideas coming together, flying, fiery serpent. Well, what's an English word for a flying, fiery serpent? Sounds Dragon. like one of the uh, words on the title of your book. Yeah. So we, we know that there are other dragons mentioned in the Bible, but we, we argue just and again, speculative because the Bible doesn't explicitly say so. But uh, this idea that they are radiant or glowing is in, implicit in the name um, seraphim, the burning ones, but also in descriptions where these spirit beings of various types are encountered by the prophets. You know, Daniel encounters them who's gleaming like bronze, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we see this uh, elsewhere in Scripture that uh, these these entities, and even the term nakash according to Dr. Michael Heiser, has uh, a, a, an implied or uh, uh, related meaning that uh, implies uh, glowing like burnished or polished brass. So um, we, we don't think it's too far to speculate, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it in the ter- realm of speculation. But anyway, getting back to the, uh, the Ophidian figurines and the head shaping of the ancient world prior to the flood, we think, um, we think that this was their effort to emulate what they perceived as the gods. Mm. Now, would this have connected with uh, uh, the Genesis 6 incursion? Because we hear other stories about this as well, and you talk about them in your books, such as Gilgamesh and uh, the Abkalu, and, you know, um, the ancient aliens crowds are obsessed with some of those. But, you know, what's the reality here? And is there a connection with that, with that Genesis 6 uh, episode? Well, we think so, because those would be the... Uh, spirit beings, the supernatural entities that the ancient world, the pre-flood world, would have had contact with. And the only iconography or imagery or artwork, if you will, that we have of these supernatural beings from ancient Mesopotamia is post-flood, for the most part, uh, from the Ubaid culture and onward. Uh, so just for, say, the last five, 6,000 years, we get these kind of strange depictions of uh, lion dragons and um, scorpion men and bison men and fishmen, or, or mermen and mermaids, if you will. Um, the, the word that describes all of these sort of chimeric entities, like the, uh, the kusariku, the bison man, is theriomorphic, meaning it's, a, it's therio, meaning beast, 
and morphic uh, in form. Uh, it's sort of a hybrid animal-human. When we look at Revelation chapter 9, and when the abyss, the bottomless pit is opened, these things come out that are chimeric in appearance. Um, you know, women's hair and uh, uh, they, uh, teeth like lions and uh, horse-like in appearance, but with scorpions' tails, there are the power of scorpions to inflict pain for five months. Those are theriomorphic. I mean, yeah, the Mesopotamians lived a lot closer to that time than we did, but still, post-flood and way after those things have been sent off to the abyss. The one thing we do know is that in Second Peter 2 and in Jude verses 6 and 7, there are references to angels who sinned, who are currently in chains in gloomy darkness. And Peter, in fact, is specific in saying that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but thrust them down to, the Greek word is tartarau, which means to Tartarus, which is not Hades. That's a separate level of the underworld. Uh, Peter chose that word specifically, and that's the only place in Scripture where it's used. So as Mike Kaiser would say, uh, if, it's in, if it's weird and it's in the Bible, it's important. So who do we know in Tartarus? And especially when you look closely at 2 Peter 2 and Jude, those angels they're referring to, it's clear in context, they, they committed a sexual sin. And the only place we know of angels in the Bible committing a sexual sin is Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. The sons of God who saw that the daughters of man were fair and took wives of all they chose and so on. Uh, of course, the book of First Enoch goes into more detail about that incident and describes how they were punished. And, uh, uh, you know, that was the understanding of the, uh, the, uh, the Jews of the time of the disciples and the apostles. Also, the early church. Uh, through throughout the first 400 years after the crucifixion, it was understood by the church almost universally that the origin of demons were these hybrid, the spirits of these hybrid entities, the Nephilim, the giants who were uh, destroyed in Noah's flood, and that their parents had been punished by being sent into the abyss or into Tartarus or into the netherworld. So um, those entities, while the Greek uh, mythologers, the, the poets like Hesiod and Homer depicted them as uh, anthropomorphic, human in form. How would they know? I mean, they were living four thousand years after the after the flood when they were sent down to the tar sent down to the abyss. I mean, you know, they don't have any better idea than you and I do. So, I would argue, and we do in the book, that those entities that come flying out of the abyss in Revelation nine, those are the watchers, the sons of God from Genesis six also identified or called by the ancients, the Titans of Greek mythology and the Apkalu of ancient Mesopotamia. They're all the same. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And that's something I've been, I've been thinking for a while too, because when you look at the description, the physical description in the book of Revelation to these creatures, and then you look at the physical descriptions of the throne angels in Ezekiel, you actually see that it's an inverse uh, I mean, in mm -hmm. almost every way, it's a direct inverse. Like, you know, these are the bad guys, so they're totally the opposite, even in appearance, to the good guys around the throne. Speaking of prophecy as well, you, you get into, in part two of the book, the 70 weeks timeline. And I know this is something that's mm -hmm. been, you know, discussed a, a lot in Christianity, and everybody kind of has their ideas about it. Uh, but you, you get into some areas that aren't typically talked about. What did, what, what did you and uh, Sharon's research turn up about the 70 weeks? Well, I got to give Sharon credit on this. For people not familiar with the term the 70 weeks, in um, the book of Daniel, he's visited by an angel 
who delivers to him a prophecy that uh, outlines 70 weeks decreed for um, his people, presumably meaning the Jews, and the, uh, the holy city being Jerusalem. And that indicates a, a period of 70 weeks of years. So Daniel understood that that meant a 70-year a period uh, that would, would take place uh, before the uh, Jews were released from uh, captivity in Babylon, that they were free to go home. Uh, but then he read also in Jeremiah that there was a, another prophecy that was given to Jeremiah that, look, if you don't do these things that I asked you to do, and if you do these things that I told you not to do, uh, we're going to multiply this by seven. So the 70 years that was supposed to be the time of the Jews in Babylon was expanded to 490 years. And uh, that actually turned out to be the uh, the the, the the case. And I was looking for the verses here, which Sharon very thoughtfully included in the book, Daniel 9, chapters, or chapter 9, verses 22 through 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Uh, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, that's Messiah, uh, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 72 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time, and after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. So you take the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, you get 69 weeks, again, 69 times seven, and that leads to an anointed one who shall be cut off and have nothing. Now, it was understood by Jews of the Second Temple period, this was this period of history here after the return from Babylon and the construction of the Second Temple, that that pointed to the arrival of Messiah. So the first century AD was a time of messianic fervor in ancient Judea. And as we see hints in scripture in the book of Acts, that there were false messiahs who were raised up and then led rebellions and were destroyed either by the, the, the Jews or the Romans. Um, the question is, how accurate is this prophecy? Now, this is something that I remember Chuck Mistler teaching on some years ago. And so I went digging for the um, for the reference to it, because I remembered in the back of my mind, Chuck Missler teaching on uh, the 69 weeks. And by the way, we are now uh, in a gap period before the 70th week, because the 70th week begins the last seven years of history, which is where we get the idea, by the way, of the seven year period called the Great Tribulation. Right. Um, and that will be the period where everything is, is wrapped up. However, uh, it wasn't Chuck Missler his original idea to to this on the 69 weeks leading to the arrival of Messiah in Jerusalem. And again, I remembered that he had written somewhere that it nailed the arrival of Messiah in Jerusalem to the day. Now, Chuck Misser was brilliant. and We miss him. And I thought, sure, that he was the one who had written this. But he pointed to another author since deceased, Sir Robert Anderson, who had written a book called The Coming Prince in the early part of the 20th century. It's about, uh, it's, I think 1911 was when it was published. But what's interesting is that Sir, Charles, Sir Robert Anderson, some years prior to that, 1888, was an assistant commissioner in a, a metropolitan police in London. That's what we call Scotland Yard. That was the time of the Jack the Ripper murders. Mm. Now, Sharon had previously found that the commissioner of the metropolitan police, Sir Charles Warren, 
was an engineer. He was a an archaeologist, and then turned to fighting crime. I guess when he in, in his uh, in later years, uh, he's the one who discovered Warren's shaft in Jerusalem, by the way, which is the channel through which uh, King Hezekiah dug down to the Pool of Siloam to bring water into the city so they could withstand the uh, siege of the Assyrians. Um, Warren, in September of 1869, climbed the summit of Mount Hermon and found inside a temple on the summit, the highest man-made place of worship on planet Earth, a stela that was inscribed in archaic Greek, which uh, scholars have translated to read something like, by order of the most high and holy God, those who swore an oath proceed from here. Mm. Now, Josh, your viewers, if they're familiar with the story of the Watchers in First Enoch, they understand that First uh, Enoch, I believe, is chapter six, uh, describes how these uh, two hundred Watchers descended on Mount Hermon and swore a mutual oath because their leader, called Shemiyaza, was concerned that he would alone take the blame for the sin that they were about to commit, which was to teach humanity things we weren't supposed to know, and oh yes, take lots of you know really hot babes for wives. So this. Stila, written in Greek, so it couldn't have been before the invasion of Alexander the Great, around 330 BC, somewhere in there. Even the Greeks of that period understood what had happened on the summit of Mount Hermon thousands of years before. Wow. And Sir Charles Warren got permission from the, the, the Pasha, the, uh, the governor in Damascus the, uh, for the Ottoman Empire, to take it down the mountain. It's back in the British Museum. Huh. We. <laughs> It's not on display, we asked, uh, because we really wanted to see it. Now, Sharon included the uh, unboxing of that stone as a plot point in her uh, series of supernatural fiction, The Red Wing Saga. Bad things happened when the stone was unboxed. But it's interesting that after Warren got back to London, you know, 18 years later, he's uh, 19 years later, he's the commissioner of Metropolitan Police. And his assistant, Sir Robert Anderson, winds up writing this book called The Coming Prince about the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. He also wrote, an, wrote another book, by the way, about Daniel's prophecies, uh, uh, Daniel in the Critics' Den, defending the, the, the truth and the accuracy of the prophecies of Daniel and his authorship of the book against the, uh, the higher critics who were trying to say, well, this was just written all after the fact. Because as Sharon pointed out, uh, you know, she she really went, did a deep dive into the book of Daniel, because not only does his 70 weeks nail to the day the arrival of Messiah in Jerusalem, fulfilled by Jesus Christ, Daniel also prophesied historic events that would take place in uh, what is now Israel and Egypt between the uh, Greek Seleucid Empire, based in Damascus, mm -hmm. uh, and the, the Egyptian Ptolemaic Empire. Uh, the wars that would take place between those two uh, empires, basically fighting back and forth for control over uh, Israel, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Lebanon, for, for a couple hundred years with such accuracy that critics say, well, this couldn't have been written before the event. It had to be written afterwards, except that many of the events in Daniel took place after the Old Testament, what we Christians call the Old Testament, was translated into Greek by the Jewish scholars in Alexandria, the version of the Bible called the Septuagint. So we know that whoever wrote Daniel, and we believe it was Daniel, but whoever wrote Daniel, it was completed by at least 300 BC or thereabouts. And a lot of the events that were fulfilled took place after that. 
with such precision that skeptics just refuse to believe it. And so that's what Sir Robert Anderson was uh, writing about. And Sharon goes into some description here with a long excerpt from The Coming Prince because it's really worth it. Um, and she uses the bold and the all caps that Sir Robert Anderson wrote in his book. <laughs> and he, it's clear from reading his work that Sir Robert did not suffer fools gladly. I mean, to him, this was so obvious, this work of scholarship. And he did this in a day when we didn't have the Internet. I mean, he had to write to a friend in the Royal Astronomical Society who was head of the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, England, to find out um, what was the date of the, um, uh, the, the first new moon, uh, calculating the date of the first of Nisan in, in 444 B.C., so that they could calculate the exact number of years from the going out of the word, the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the temple, and then to calculate from that to the day in, uh, in uh, what was the year, A.D. 32, 6th April, A.D. 32, to the day, and I'm reading this points. So he goes down point by point, no, one, two, three, four, and he gets to number 11. The Julian date of that 10th Nisan was Sunday, the 6th April, A.D. 32. What then was the length of the period intervening between the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the public advent of Messiah the Prince between 14th March, B.C. 445 and 6th April, A.D. 32, and then he switches to all caps. The interval contained exactly and to the very day, 173,880 days or seven times 69 prophetic years of 360 days, the first 69 weeks of Gabriel's prophecy. You just, you know, this, this scholarly fellow balding with a, you know, long goatee, just pounding the desk as he delivered this uh, on a Sunday morning somewhere in a, in a pulpit. Uh, but that was the key to it. He understood that you're dealing with a lunar calendar, and if you try to calculate it based on a solar year of 365 days, you wind up missing the date. But when you calculate it to 360 days times the 69 weeks of years, you wind up with the exact date leading up to the, uh, uh, the, the Passover Seder in Jerusalem in the year AD 32. Nailed it to the date. And again, Chuck Missler was so impressed that I saw, I heard him speak on it, saw, found his article on it. And that's how we were led to uh, Sir Robert Anderson in the book, The Coming Prince. And, and again, you know, the, he, he included in his book and Sharon cites in the book, the note from the head of the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, the astronomer who's had his men tasked with sitting down and calculating based on, you know, you use slide rules, calculators, or whatever. Where was the moon <laughs> on, on uh, March 12th of 444 BC for his friend at the Metropolitan Police to calculate the prophecy of Daniel? It was, it's, it's an amazing piece of work, and it's astonishing when you read it, but it was worth including in the book just to nail down for people, look, we can trust this prophecy will be fulfilled. The first part was fulfilled when the Messiah was cut off in Jerusalem on that day on Good Friday, and he rose again with eyewitnesses who testified to that event on the, at the cost of their own lives. So take heart, Christian, because the rest of the prophecy will be fulfilled, and these giants, gods, and dragons aligned against God, their plans will come to nothing. Amen. It's amazing to get confirmation like that, too, because um, uh, some stuff that I've been looking in in the D Dead Sea Scrolls, which, you know, date to at least a hundred years before the time of Christ. But in one of those, um, 
I believe it's uh, 11Q Melchizedek. It might be a different one. But um, in one of those, it talks about 32 AD as being the exact uh, year that the Messiah would die for their sins. They actually had that understanding. And it's it's amazing because when you take that date back and you subtract uh, Jesus's age, you actually get to, because I, I actually had to do this on the computer because, you know, there's no year zero. So I don't know how to do that math. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, I did it. There, there's a website where you can just plug in two dates, BC and AD, and it'll tell you. Uh, and you plug those in and you actually come to the date uh, September 11th, 3 BC for, uh, for his, his birthday, which it's, it's amazing how all of this stuff pieces together. We have a lot right. more to talk about because you, uh, get into the seals and you, you make a really compelling argument that the seals may have already started to have been broken. Uh, and we, we definitely have to talk about that before we do. We have one viewer question that I wanted to run by you. Uh, and this comes okay. from Annette. Uh, Annette asks, uh, Derek, is your book suitable for boys age 11 to 16? Do you know of a Christian video game that would be a good companion for this book? I want to introduce my grandsons to this subject. So Annette is looking for advice for her grandsons. Uh, is your work suitable? Yeah, uh, there's nothing in there that would um, uh, you know, be disturbing to them or inappropriate for that age group. Uh, we don't dumb it down, but I think we've explained it well enough that people can understand. So the concepts are high level concepts. And if they get into this stuff and, and realize, I think that these creatures that we've been taught are just fictional. And, and that's really what inspired the title of the book, by the way, is this idea that, you know, Dungeons and Dragons players are protesting because the orcs are always depicted as evil and that's racist. You, you know, we can laugh at that, but Survey after survey shows that most American Christians don't believe that Satan is real, that the Holy Spirit is real, that demons are real, and so forth, much less the giants of Genesis 6 or the dragons that will dominate the end times, the seven-headed red dragon called Satan, and then the beast that emerges from the sea, who looks really weird and not at all like we think of a dragon, but that's exactly how dragons were depicted in ancient Mesopotamia. So think about that. And think, you know, have them read Job 41 to get him excited about this, because when they start reading that chapter of Job, which describes Leviathan, the uh, chaos dragon of, of uh, prehistory, you know, the first rebel put down by God in Genesis 1 verse 2, um, boy, they'll get excited about it. I wish I'd known this stuff when I was 12, because it would have made church so much cooler. These entities, these spirit beings that uh, we've been taught were just imaginary. You know, the pagans were just fooled. They thought the block of stone was, was actually alive. Well, no, that's not really how they viewed things. Those idols were sort of like receivers, like, you know, radio tuners. When they prayed to the god, he would come and that's where he would, you know, give him locality. But he wasn't in the stone. Uh, that's, that's just an idea that's been taught to us over history, um, when they begin to understand that the spirit realm is far more complicated, there are a lot more entities working in it, it's a lot more like Lord of the Rings than we've been taught. And so that's why you get this orc-looking creature on the uh, the front cover who, by the way, Jeffrey Martis, the cover artist who does many of our books, yours too, Josh, I know, is just absolutely brilliant. And uh, we love his work. And it really conveys the sense that we were hoping to capture with the book, that Look, we're in the middle of a war against things like this on the cover and dragons, except, you know, Lord of the Rings, Smog was pretty dangerous, but he only had one head. Leviathan's got seven. The Antichrist is, we argue, Leviathan. 
Uh, Satan got seven. So that's like smog times seven. But God is still going to win. So you start thinking in terms like that and realize we're in the middle of this epic battle. I mean, picture in the uh, the Return of the King, the third movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where the riders of Rohan are coming down onto the field in front of the walls of Gondor. Like, my goodness, just imagine that. But on a heavenly scale, when the Lord of hosts, which means Lord of armies, leads the heavenly army into battle against the Antichrist and his forces, and we're going to be, you know, leaning over the rails of heaven, cheering him on, or maybe even in the army, who knows? Uh, but that is what we're trying to convey with this sense here. We don't portray it in a scary way, but we don't, like, like I said, we don't try to simplify or dumb anything down. So God bless your grandsons if they're going to read this book. I don't know of any video games that capture this yet, but boy, it would be awesome to have something like this. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've read the book and I know when I was uh, that age, I would have absolutely loved it. I'm 35 and I still absolutely love it. So I totally agree. I think this would be a great book for uh, somebody of that age. Uh, speaking of which, where can people pick up your book and follow you online? Uh, the book is available through any major retailer, uh, amazon.com. And we're, you know, we've just been humbled to see that it's been the number one new release at Amazon's uh, Old Testament Bible study category for several weeks, which is just, you know, who knew? <laughs> you know, an old radio disc jockey's writing books of theology. Um, so Amazon is one place, but the best deal, the best offer really is through uh, the Skywatch TV store online, skywatchtvstore.com. There's a special offer that includes the book and then a series of DVDs, six DVD sets that's like 27 hours of video that uh, Sharon and I have recorded. Uh, many of them are presentations that we've given on topics like this, but there are two that are, um, well, three that are different. One is a, a, a collection of programs from our weekly show called Unraveling Revelation that deals specifically with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then we've got two videos that are essentially, um, uh, I, and I'll, I'll steal a, a term from our, our friend, Dr. Aaron Judkins, travelogumentaries <laughs> as we traveled through Israel in 2018 and 2019, showing you various sites with teachings along the way. Uh, so uh, the one from last year also includes like four hours of bonus teachings from uh, me, Pastor Carl Gallops, and Rabbi Zev Porat uh, in Israel. So that for 35 bucks compared to Amazon, where you just get the book for 19 bucks or 20 bucks. Yeah, that's definitely a great deal. So I highly suggest people uh, go and get the book. It's phenomenal. We do have a lot more to talk about. I really want to get into the seals and uh, why you think that they they might have uh, possibly already started to have been broken, which that that is fascinating and mind-blowing. But for that, everybody watching for free, you're going to have to go to dailyrenegade.com and become a member. Remember, the reason that we do this is because YouTube has gotten in the nasty habit of deleting our videos. Uh, so we can't say whatever we want to say on YouTube. That's why we have Daily Renegade, and it's also very costly uh, to run that website and be able to have the protection in place to make sure that our videos won't get deleted ever and that we have enough room to be able to house all the videos that we do. So you won't only get the rest of this sharpening report, you'll get the rest of every sharpening 
report, plus JPD Weekly, plus uh, Christian Contrarian with Gary Wayne and Christian Marauder with Brian Melvin. We have Detox Babylon with Mike Stibbs. You have a lot to choose from. You're going to find a lot of things uh, that you like. So make sure you go over to dailyrenegade.com and get a membership today. It's only 10 bucks a month or 100 a year. I suggest getting the 100 a year because you get two months for free that way. You just pay for it once. You don't have to think about it for a whole year. So it's a great deal. Head on over there, dailyrenegade.com. All right. Everybody uh, who, if you are a member and you are watching it, hang on the line. Everybody else watching for free, thank you so much. And until next time, take care and God bless. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.